Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. You guys know this podcast is about healing and resilience, those two things, about healing and resilience, about coming back, um, about strong women bouncing back. Um, and one thing that I think is undercovered or under not spoken about as much as it needs to be is the connection between trauma, specifically violence, and even more specifically murder and addiction. Um, not just that addiction leads to a whole bunch of things which lead to murder, but that people uh, who are subject to violence numb out. They use alcohol just to stay alive um, and other things. And uh, that's what today's about, is about violence, then the numbing out, and then about a woman who confronted incredible violence in recovery and remained sober. And that is really something, a story to tell. You'll want to hear this. Thanks. I was done. I was just done. I could not go on the way I was living anymore. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. When I heard Rebecca tell her story, I said, you got to do that on the podcast. you got to do that in some forum other than just in the rooms, um, because it'll mean a lot to a lot of different people, to a, to a wider audience. Um, it takes us a while, uh, probably three quarters of this podcast, so you get to know her as a human being uh, before we get to the, to the really, to the murder that she had to overcome. Um, and so this is not a murder podcast. It's not a true crime podcast. It's a podcast about resilience. It's a podcast about human beings who have to come back from incredible things and she's an inspiration to me. Rebecca? Where were you born? I was born in Burlington, North Carolina. Hospital or home? Hospital. For your mother, your number what of how many? I'm the baby. And um, I, have an, I had an older brother, okay. seven years older. Yeah. And he's no longer with us? No. Yeah. Were you guys close? Yes. Oh, we wow. Were. Wow. Can I ask how he passed? He had cancer. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah that's hard. Um, does it make you like more attuned to that when you have it in the family? Like, do you uh, pay more attention? I feel more watching him. I, he's the first person I ever watched die. Right. Yeah. And you were there for him. Mm -hmm. You were able to be present. I was so thankful I was sober when all that was going on. I hear that a that lot I of could, times. That I could be present yeah. for his, for my niece, my nephew, his wife, for him, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, a year ago this month, my birth mother, who I, I, I was able to go get into the nursing home hold her hand, oh. and tell her goodbye. And that meant the world, mm -hmm. you know. It really did. So you grew up in Burlington? Did you grow up and go to school there? Um, no. we. Um, my father was an alcoholic, mm -hmm. and he was violent. He was a violent drunk. When I was a baby, he went on one of his rampages in the house, and my mother and my brother got out, and they were standing in the yard listening to him tear up the house. And I was still in the house in my crib. I was three or four months old at that time. 
and my my brother grabbed my mother's hand and looked up at her and he, and he said I was so glad he said I was so hoping that she wasn't going to have to grow up like this wow seven for a little kid old, to say seven that 7 years old yeah wow he told you that story then no my mother told me that story years later. Wow. Yeah. And so did they stay together? No. Um, my mother said at that point she knew she had to leave. Of course, that was back in the 50s. I was born in 55. That was back in the 50s, and there were not places where women could go who had two children who left their husbands. I mean, we were, you know, neighbors, family, friends, you know, we stayed on whoever offered us places at the time. That's kind of where we stayed. So you kind of bounced around. Right. And my father had actually um, sold the house out from under us. That's how we became homeless, mm. is that he sold the house so he could have more money to drink and use the way he wanted to. Did he ever get sober? He had mental illness also. Mm -hmm. um, Bipolar or? I'm not really sure. Yeah. I'm not really sure. He was, he was medicated. He tried to get sober. Um, and finally, at the end of his life, I think he was sober just because he couldn't drink anymore. Yeah. And did you all ever settle into a place where you could have some kind of stability long-term Places. Yes, we moved to Greensboro when I was five. Uh, my mother remarried. He was a wonderful stepfather. Oh, wonderful! So I had a good, That's a good childhood good. from then on, and my brother did too. Yeah. yeah. Were you able to see, like later on in teenage years, formative years, and all that? Were you able to see? You know, there's a lot made of the adult child of the alcoholic that we get to be grown ups, and we're like doing certain patterns. They say that the families of alcoholics, the children in particular, they start to play certain roles. They'll either be like the juvenile delinquent to get attention, or they might be That this... was me. Oh, really? Yes. I was the juvenile delinquent, and my brother was the responsible one. Yeah. He became the man of the house at seven years old. Wow. And my mother relied on him a lot. So he was the go-get-a-job. Yes. We know... both went to work when we were 12. Wow, what kind of work did you do? Well, my brother was a, remember when they had grocery store baggers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they still do a little right, of that. Right, yeah. They'll bring them to your car, they'll bring them to your house now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so he, that was his first job. And my mother actually owned an um, ice cream store sandwich place. Right. So I went to work there when I was 12 waiting tables. Yeah. And you say you were a juvenile delinquent, like what? <laughs> Is this smoking cigarettes behind the barn or what? No, you know? um, I actually ran away from home. At age? 13. Mm -hmm. And I went to live in a commune. Oh, well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I don't suppose. What kind of a commune? It was um, in Baltimore. Huh. In the, in the country, outside of the city. Um, it was actually a house that was built during the Revolutionary War. The gentleman's grandmother owned the house, and um, we had to fight. We had to shovel coal into a coal furnace to keep it heated. They had these. There were these huge cast iron bathtubs, you know, with the claw feet. Yeah. I mean, they must have been three feet deep. Um, so we had to. There are no showers, just the big bathtubs. And how many people live there? Oh, my gosh. Just people came and went. Probably, I'd say, 20 to 25. And was this, how'd you find out about this place? Um, the person, the, I ran away with two girls, and one of them somehow found out about the commune, and we, and we went to stay there. How many people, all yeah. told, were living on this old Revolutionary War house? I'd say between 20 and 25 at any given time. And was it, 
you know, was this religious in any way? Was no. it get back to the land? It was just let's all live together? Yeah. It, it was sort of a get back to the land. There were horses there. We rode horses. Um, it was more like, it was, you know, it was a hippie commune. Was this peace, love, and understanding? And, and a lot of drugs. Yeah. <laughs> but at age 13, that's dangerous for a girl, you know, because you hear about these sort of cult leaders or whatever mm -hmm. taking advantage of girls. There was really nothing like that. Huh. I, I guess I got really lucky that there was no. But smoke a lot of dope? Immorality going on. Yeah. Smoke a lot of weed? Or... Yeah. A lot of yeah. drugs. Yeah. There were some soldiers who happened upon us, and they would bring, they were um, associated with Fort Meade, the Army base, mm -hmm. and they would bring experimental drugs that the Army was working on at the time for the soldiers in Vietnam. Like hallucinogens? Or no, like... like very intense speed. Oh, like almost like math. the soldiers to... awake. Like the like the black beauties, like the exactly. But I mean, you can get psychotic if you yes, do that. You first sure can because you're not sleeping, right? So you start to dream out loud. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You. It was a lot of hallucinating on that on that speed, and that can be violent too. Mm -hmm. So you escape this violent place, but you did not. There would you didn't experience violence in the no, commune. No, yeah. not at all. Wow. Mm -hmm. That well, you were. Somebody's looking out for you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so were you able to graduate high school or did no. you go? You didn't. Mm -mm. You just hung out there. Right. And then what kind of work did you do? How did you put food on the table? Um, we all had little jobs that we did. Um, eventually, when I left the commune, I went, I went back into the restaurant business, nightclub business. Uh -huh. Up there? Yes, in Baltimore, in Baltimore yes. Where was the nightclub? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, after the commune fell apart, the gentleman's family who lived in the grandmother's house, his family wanted to sell the land and put up Now, a was he a gentleman, Rebecca? Yes, he was. <laughs> oh, yeah. my word. I know. He was the this sweetest. This is not Charles Manson. <laughs> no. He was the sweetest kindness. He didn't want to lose the farm. He wanted to stay there. He wanted all us to stay there. It almost sounds like a utopian mm -hmm. kind of thing. It really was. Uh, did he lose the farm? Yes. Eventually. Yeah. Because he couldn't like make the payments or no, because his grandmother had died. Oh. And, and the so... rest of the family wanted it was acres and acres of land, hmm. and the rest of the family wanted to sell it off. And I guess eventually they probably put up little pink houses and. So you go from commune to nightclub? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what kind of a nightclub? Right. Where was this? In Baltimore. I fell in with this. Um, I actually went to work in a family-owned Greek restaurant. Uh-huh. Um, and then when they found out, when I found out they owned nightclubs, I was like, well, I want to go work at the nightclub, right? I think I saw this in The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, so they owned a chain of nightclubs also, so I went to work in one of the nightclubs. And what kind of club was it? it they had live bands. Uh -huh. um, the, the bands were really good. They covered, you know, Fleetwood Mac, Yes, so all the cover music bands. of the day. Right. Mm -hmm. Fun. I mean, like seven, eight-piece bands. Oh, my excellent, word. Excellent music. Wow. Yeah. So great music. Were you drinking then? Oh, I, absolutely. So when did you first drink? Well, um, actually, my first night at the commune was the first time I ever used any um, substance. Uh -huh. And that night I did um, two hits of pink microdot. That's like acid. Yeah, yeah. So it's hallucinogen. Absolutely. And was that a good experience, bad experience? It, there were no consequences for that night. Yeah. It, it was a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Um, we... We got in, we decided we were going to take a bath. Uh huh. So we got in the bathtub, and there was also a family of raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there were. Right. And every time they heard the water go on in the bathtub, they were perching on the side of it. <laughs> <laughs> so when you take a bath, right. there's the, not just one <laughs> raccoon, there's the entire. Right. <laughs> that is an image. <laughs> 
That's a great image. Yeah, I'll never So you're tripping right. in the bathtub, <laughs> and it's like, are First you First time sh- ever. Are you sure these were real raccoons? Yes, everyone asked me that. <laughs> and you got Rocky, Rocky Raccoon and Mrs. Raccoon and all of Right. Oh, my God. That is such a great image. And the reason I know it was real is because it continued to happen. Uh, that, yeah, whether you were pink micro right. dot or not. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. Oh, good stuff. Yeah. But um, so what was your favorite, though? Smoking weed, pink microdot? Everything. Drink. Oh, all of it. Oh, all yeah. of the above. I loved it all. Yeah. Yeah. Because? Because it got me out of me. Oh. Uh, no more worrying about the violent dad. No right. more worrying about mm-hmm. how are we going to put food on the table. Yeah. It was just like. It was like, ah. Oh. Yeah. I know that feeling. It was great. (sighs) Yes. (laughs) No more worrying. Exactly. Yeah, no anxiety whatsoever. It's just like Mm -hmm. completely hmm, check out. Not that I knew I had any anxiety at that time. Yeah. I mean, I was just a little girl, basically. And not aware of what this meant to grow up without the father. Exactly. Have the violent past and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And... A mother who probably worried a lot about... Oh, my gosh, what I put my mother through. Yeah. Unbelievable. Now, were you able to, like, get back with her and make peace with her? Yes, eventually. Mm-hmm. So I sense there's there was more to the adventure before that. <laughs> <laughs> I sense that took a little bit of while. It did. It took several years. I didn't go back home until I was 18 mm-hmm. because I was afraid. I had run away before, and they put me in juvenile detention, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to go back to juvenile detention. So I st- I went very. I went where no one could find me. And why did you run away? What did what were you running away from? Your father wasn't there anymore. No, um, my mother and I didn't get along. Mm. Um, Imagine that a teenage girl uh, not getting along with her mother. But most teenage girls don't run away when that happens. I had an opportunity to go. Ah. With and the two other girls that went with me both had unhappy home lives also. Yeah. Or so we thought. And when you got back with your mother, what was that reunion like? It was good. Wonderful. It was, yeah. Because she had been so worried. She didn't know if you were, like, dead or alive. Mm-hmm. So there was exactly. no contact. There was no, no letter, no. I mean, I might call home once a year. Oh, at least she knew that, though. Yeah. There had been some little contact. A little bit. But when you called home... What was that like? What were those conversations like? They were strained. They were, I cried the whole time. Did she say, just come home, Rebecca? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Please come home. Where are you? I'll send you a plane ticket. We'll come and get you. Where are you? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, But you were like, no. Mm-mm. Not feeling the juvie hall. No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to do that. And so you consciously waited until you were 18 exactly. to go back and do that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so were you working in the nightclub when you mm-hmm. you were? So you were like, I've got a job. Did you have like an apartment or something? Um, I actually met a man in the nightclub, mm-hmm. and he fell in love with me instantly. Yeah, I mean, and did you fall fun. in love with him? Uh... He was acceptable. Yes. Place to stay. Yeah. Yeah. He was. So there was that kind of a stability in that. He was very stable. He came from a good, loving family, a mother and father in the home, two other brothers. He was very stable, responsible, had a great job. And did you guys, like, settle in? Yeah. We lived together for seven years. That's pretty good. Did Mm -hmm. he want to get married? He did. And you said? Mm-mm, I didn't want to. Was he okay with that? He was not. I broke his heart. Oh. Well, he was But out I was there. very, um, I was very wild back then. Yeah. I was kind of an untamed person, very free spirit, and I not was using, my using was escalating. Using what? Everything. 
And so we're talking about 70s. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have a hard time. Like when I came of age, I'm only a little bit. I was 59. Mm -hmm. So I'm only a little bit behind you. Um, so when I became sexually active, nobody knew what AIDS. There was no, no. there was no talk of AIDS. No. There was no discussion. Mm -mm. HIV that would have been a blank. You know, now they knew about sexually transmitted diseases. Right. You certainly knew about pregnancy mm -hmm. and prevention. There was the pill. Mm -hmm. You know, it came along in the Thank early God. '70s. <laughs> <laughs> it saved a lot. <laughs> you know, I tithe to Planned Parenthood today because I got so much help from the free clinics in Baltimore. Right. I mean, they were handing out birth control. Right. Just, I mean, they gave me a year's <laughs> supply at a time. Yeah. So I... And it was no, do you have insurance? No. No, nothing. Oh, everything was free. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It was crazy. And eventually crazy. that turned into Planned Parenthood. Right. And there's also, um, you know, some drugs don't kind of, promote sex. I mean, even alcohol, you know, people pass out. And it's not great. Cocaine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a, like, for the sexually active person, cocaine is, <laughs> that's your sexually active drug right. of choice. And so I gather in this cornucopia of drugs that cocaine was along the way. Yes, it was. Yeah. And so, I loved it. So what happened to end that relationship? I um, met another man and left. And was he a good guy? Nice. He was, yeah. He was. You keep meeting these good guys. I know. That's amazing. Yeah. You keep hearing about all the terrible guys out there, but you've met a commune leader, <laughs> a guy in a nightclub, and then another guy who was on the scene, and they were all good guys. They were. They really were. I keep waiting to hear about <laughs> these toxic males. <laughs> um, and so what happened with that relationship? It, that relationship was based around a lot of cocaine. Yeah. And, of course, that didn't last. Um, did he deal? A little. Yeah, enough to kind of, but he kept getting high on his supply. Right. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. And then what happened to end that? <laughs> and then after that relationship, I ended up moving back to Charlotte. Oh. Yeah. Which was not the big city. No. Oh, my gosh. Sleepy. <laughs> it Sleepy. was a quiet little town. I so was that 1979. Yeah. There wasn't even liquor by the drink. <laughs> <laughs> What was wrong with those people? I know. <laughs> They're still moonshiners and bootleggers and um, uh, after hours. Brown bagging. When I was in Nashville, uh, we there were after hours clubs, and we knew where they were. Right. And you go in, and some of them you pay a dollar, and you were a member of the club, mm -hmm. and that authorized you to get alcohol after 2 a.m. Oh. And we knew, we worked in the restaurant business, so we knew where all this was. Right. The party just kept on going till exactly. dawn, you know. So you probably knew where some of those places right. were, where the scene was. There were some gambling houses. Yeah. Yeah. There and were then some they, of those. in some communities they call them liquor liquor right. houses. Exactly. That's a good time house. There's a little bit yeah. of everything going yeah. on there, shootings and <laughs> you know men and women and gambling and you know, it's just like the. It's like Vegas in a house. Right, in the basement, <laughs> in the basement of a house. In the basement exactly. of a house. A little bit of everything going right. on People there. People playing poker, roulette yeah. wheels, yeah. Not the safest place in the world, though. I never awesome. felt unsafe. I'm not yeah, sure. they were your people. They were. And evidently, <laughs> either you have a guardian angel or, you know, you just have this chemistry where you attracted these, even people doing cocaine, decent they weren't smacking you around they no. weren't yeah i did get hit one time in the nightclub and how did you respond it knocked the breath out of me yeah i mean he punched me pretty hard in the gut i forgot about that yeah no. but no pressing charges no. no yeah no so how did charlotte go in the 
in the 80s? Um, there was a lot of, lot of cocaine use. Yeah. I met um, my drug dealer, mm-hmm. and I married him. <laughs> married your dealer. <laughs> yep, I did. That's one way. Yeah, keep of, your source closed. Yeah. Um, then in 1987, I was working for um, Marriott Hotels, uh-huh. and I went to their management training program. Oh, wow. And I went to um, Washington, D.C. to the corporate headquarters to train for two weeks. I went with another girl who worked at the same property I did. And on the way home, I got into a horrific car accident. Wow. Uh, We were on 85. We were getting close to the Lexington exit. And a um, tractor-trailer truck was pulled over in the emergency lane. Not the truck, not the trailer part, just the cab part. Right. Because some truckers had radioed him and told him, man, your back lights aren't working. Somebody's going to run into the back of you. So he got over in the emergency lane, tried to fix his lights, and couldn't get them fixed. Got back in the truck and pulled right out in front of me. I never saw him. It was dark, foggy, rainy. I never saw him. Never hit the brakes. Do you remember the accident? I remember um, someone coming up to the car right after it. And I remember telling them my mother's phone number um, because I knew we were close to Greensboro. And then I remember being in the ambulance and having my jeans cut off me. Wow. Um, And then they asked me what hospital I wanted to go to. Do you want to go to Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem or do you want to go to Moses Cone in Greensboro? And for some reason, I thought, well, I was raised Baptist. Let's go to Baptist (laughs) Hospital. And there at Baptist, they had the doctor who could save my life Mm. at Baptist Hospital. So that made the difference. Yeah. He was a trauma surgeon. He'd gone to school for 12 years to medical school. He'd gone an extra four years for trauma. Wow. And he was walking out of the hospital when the ambulance brought me in. And someone went after him and said, I don't know if I should say his name or not, but they said, hey, we just have a girl in here. She's in horrible shape. We don't know if she's going to make it. Well, if he saved your life, yeah. what's his name? His name was uh, Wayne Tucker. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that guy was like an angel. Yes. And he did surgery on you? Yeah, my liver was punctured in three places. Both my arms were broken, both my legs were broken, my face was crushed, Um, but immediately they had to stop the bleeding from the liver, from the liver. Yeah, because you could have bled out. Right, exactly. And he was able to do that. Right, he sure was, he had the knowledge. Did he save the liver? Yeah. So the organ you'd been trying to destroy, (laughs) (laughs) you'd been busy trying to destroy that and he, he rescued it. He did. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So you've got to have thought about all these times where you could have died, and that's mm. certainly one where you were probably mm-hmm. closest to death. Right. The state trooper was going to write the truck driver a ticket for death by motor vehicle. Oh, wow. Because he thought I was dead. The state trooper, I was in the hospital three months. The state trooper actually came to the hospital to see me. Wow. Because he couldn't believe that I was alive. He wanted to see it with his own eyes. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> it's almost like, not because he was trying to check on you, it's kind of like, I don't even believe it. I, I yeah. want to see it with my own eyes. Right. Uh, he's the doubting Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> he just, I guess he wanted to see what, I, what kind of shape I was in. Wow. Yeah. And so they said you were... We toss around that word miracle, but did they say that it's just everything came together for you to survive? None of my doctors. I tried to thank them all. I tried to thank my orthopedic surgeon. I tried to thank Dr. Tucker. I tried to thank my plastic surgeon. And that none of them would take any credit for saving me. When I tried to thank Dr. Tucker, he said, he just pointed up. He said, you better be thanking him and pointed up. Did you have any kind of 
relationship or understanding of a power, that power, whatever that power is that he was pointing to, did you have any notion? I, I did because my mother took us to church as children. Um, she had a, an enormous faith, and I was taught in Sunday school, I remember this, that God loved all the little children, and there was a painting in the Sunday school with Jesus with all the little children around him, and he was smiling, and all the children were intently focused on Jesus. So I, I understood that God and Jesus loved me. So that's, that was what I got from church. Now, but when my mother deemed we were old enough to sit in the sermon on Sunday, um, then I started hearing about the punishing. If you don't do what God says, you're going to go to hell. And that's when I started hearing about the fire and brimstone God. Right. Which I was like, I don't want to hear this. The threat. Right. Angry God. Yeah. Punishing yeah. God. Yeah. You're going to hell, God. And so I, when people have a near-death experience, they usually have a story mm -hmm. about it. Uh, even if that story is just, well, shit happens, you know, it was just, I don't know, it was just random chance. What is the story you told yourself then and you tell yourself now about why you survived? Um, I think because God had a purpose for me. I think that the accident and I couldn't, I couldn't walk for two years. I was in a wheelchair for a long time. I mean, my whole identity was taken away from me as far as I'd always been so career focused until then. And my whole identity was stripped from me. And so I was, when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, was it shortly after that? It was, the accident was in 87, and I came into AA in 1992. Oh, it was still five years. Five more years. So you kept using. Yeah, I sure did. I sure did. So what brought you in? My soul collapsed. I had this, and I only... I'm only describing it this way because I heard it at my first couple of AA meetings and I related. I heard someone say they had, that they had a hole in their gut that the wind blew through. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I feel like. And then I heard someone else say right before I got here, it felt like my soul was collapsing. And I was like, oh, that's it. And the, the last thing that I had was alcohol, half gallons of vodka. That's the last thing that, that worked. I had stopped using the cocaine a year before that. Um, and I couldn't drink the feelings away anymore. The feelings of? Of there, this is no way to live. I couldn't drink away the situation I was in. I couldn't drink away the lies. I couldn't drink away the, that persistent nagging that I was going to die if I kept doing this. And one day, this little, back at that point it was a small voice, but I heard this small voice and it said, I want to live. And I had never heard that voice before in my life. I thought I was going to be, I mean, I was amazed on my 27th birthday that I was still alive. I remembered having this moment of clarity for just a few seconds, thinking that, wow, I'm 27, I'm still alive. I never thought I would make it this far. 
So when I heard that voice, I was 37. Um, no, it wasn't quite 37 then. When I heard that voice saying, I want to live, I was like, who said that? And then it got louder and a little bit louder. And I actually didn't know what to do. I mean, I'd known people who had gone to treatment, but I didn't know that was a possibility for me. So I never went to treatment. Um, and through a strange set of circumstances, I landed in Alcoholics Anonymous. Someone mm -hmm. suggested that I go to an AA meeting. Who was that? My therapist. I gone to a therapist. Wow. And she had a friend who was in AA. And I told her my story about running away from home, et cetera. And she sat there with her mouth hanging open. And she said, do you realize at 13 years of age, you were not equipped to live on your own and to be out in the world like you were? And I said, no, I never thought about that. That thought never occurred to me. That, that I, you were an adolescent right. and you still required parenting, like just basic, like you needed somebody to hug, <laughs> a, hug on right. you, you know, you needed right. somebody. And my mother was not an affectionate person. Yeah, you need all. somebody to tell you, Rebecca, you're pretty, you yeah. know, Rebecca, you're smart, Rebecca. I never heard any of that. You've got a lot to give yeah, to I this world, mm -mm. you know, you're an amazing no, never heard any of that. Makes me want to cry because yeah. there are a lot of people who never hear those words. Yeah. You're and, an amazing and person. And my mother was brought up in an age where you did not spare the rod. Right. So I was whipped. Right. Pretty consistently. That that was the way you demonstrated. That was the way you were a good parent. Right. Like in, Back then. unless you whipped kids who were... Bad. Ba misbehaving. Right. Then, yeah, and that's the thing, that to treat the kid like they're bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're just being kids, you know. They're going to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to lie. They're going to lie to you to try to protect themselves. And Yeah. Yeah. I remember my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Kirkman, my mother had, she always whipped me on my legs, and I had gone to school with these bruises and, and like cut marks on my legs. And Mrs. Kirkman was appalled. She was mortified. And she called my mother and said, what, what happened? And my mother informed her that I was her daughter and that she would beat me when she deemed necessary. Wow. And, and that's what it was like back then. I mean. Why do you think AA took, are you what they call the one chip wonder that you got one white chip, you got one surrender and you didn't have to relapse? Why did it take? Why were you willing? What was it about you that you were ready? I was done. I was just done. I could not go on the way I was living anymore. I mean, at, at, at one point in my addiction, I weighed 105 pounds. I ate every three days, and the only reason I ate then was because it felt like my stomach was eating itself. Mm -hmm. Just the not sleeping, the... I mean, I have a, a photograph of myself at... Uh, there, there was a fest... It used to be called Spring Fest. I don't know if you lived here then. But, I, but someone took a Polaroid of me at that festival, and I look like the walking dead. I mean, my skin is a color not found in nature. <laughs> and I was just, my cheeks are sunken in, my chest was sunken in. I mean, I was, you know, just like you said, a your friend who was dying was the skeleton. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I looked like, but I was walking around. And I was, and that voice, that God voice said, I want to live. And I came into AA, and I immediately related to everyone in the rooms. I could just relate to what they were saying. I was like, oh, my gosh, these are my people. <laughs> 
You were my people out there. Very unscrewed up tribe. <laughs> right. Now you're my people in here. And you're bound to have felt better, too, physically. Oh, my gosh, yeah. You're able to Just eat. Just not having hangovers was yeah. a miracle. And keep a little bit of food down and, right. you know, Brush actually. Brush my teeth without gagging. Yeah. Being able to stand up in the shower. Wow. Yeah. I mean, those things were all huge in the beginning. Yeah. Not having yeah. to have a drink in the shower. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know guys who said they wanted to develop um, like places to keep their beer cold in the shower. You know, it's like <laughs> most people do not need right. the shower beer in the morning anyway. <laughs> most people don't have a shower beer in the morning. <laughs> my, mor- my morning cocktail was a white Russian. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that gave you a little... Because it tasted like chocolate milk. A little nutritional value, too. (laughs) And you could keep it down, too. Yeah, exactly. That's important. Tasted good. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, We're so insane. When did you get to the point where you said, I think this might work. I might actually have a life. I might actually be able to... Like, what was the moment where you said oh, my God, promises are coming true for me. That's not just a bunch of happy horse shit. This, you know, this, this, this could actually work. I was very enamored with AA in the beginning. I just... Well, you'd been in one cult. So. Right? <laughs> and it was happy. <laughs> I just took to AA so quickly. Yeah. I mean, I... My first 30, 60, 90 days, I saw the people going in and out. Right. And I said to myself, that cannot be my story. I will die if I go back out there. I will never be able to get back in here. I've got to stay here. And I just got into the book and got into the steps and got into service and started answering the phones at Intergroup. And I had my sponsors said, you can have my home group as your home group, and you may choose your own home group that you would like to have. I mean, she was, I think she saw the fear in my eyes, how scared I was, and she kept me so busy. Oh, my gosh, she kept me busy. And I I just... But not a hard ass, not, not really. Yeah, she was. She was tough. Yeah. She didn't take any of my self-pity crap. But she also wasn't whipping you and she no. wasn't she was in she was also doing that to the point of encouraging you, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, she was not you know despairing you. She was not saying you're never going to make it. You're no. not gonna. She was saying you got to do and do and do. Right. And and no matter how much you think this is like a bunch of busy work, this is a lot easier than doing that round and round. Yes. Constantly try. It's a lot easier, no matter how much busy work you're doing, it's a lot easier to do that than it is to get back. Yes. Because so many people just don't make it back. Yeah. You know, they go out thinking, oh, I'll get it again. And it always gets so much harder. I heard a woman this week call that grabbing hold of the side of the pool. You know, like pulling yourself out of the pool. It becomes harder and harder just to grab hold of the side of the pool and get any kind of leverage whatsoever to get yourself out. Yes. Because the nature of the disease is it has so much more momentum, Mm -hmm. you know, and it gathers so much more momentum that it takes more to get back in. Yes. And people, I don't think, I think they tell themselves, well, I've done this once. I can just keep coming back, keep coming back. And it gets harder and harder and harder to pick up the phone, to make it into the rooms, to make it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, because your pride gets in there and your ego gets in there. Yeah, there's a bunch of lies. I came here for you to tell me, like, one particular story that was very meaningful to me. So you got married, right? right? I, got, I met a man when I was nine months sober. We got married when I was two years sober. Um, and for a while, it was a good marriage. And then he made a decision to, I found out later, to smoke some weed, to drink on the down low, and then he had surgery and got addicted to um, hydrocodone, and he refused to, he stopped going to meetings, of course, 
and he refused to go back to meetings, wouldn't even consider treatment. And he came home one day and he said, well, you were so worried about the hydrocodone, so I got off the hydrocodone and the doctor's giving me Xanax now. Benzos. Yeah. Anti-anxiety. Which they refer to nowadays as freeze-dried alcohol. Mm -hmm. Hits the exact same neuroreceptors as alcohol does. I, I tell people, when, when you do that, the brain goes, oh, thank God we're drinking again. Mm, yes. Because it has the exact same effect. It's the same as drinking a bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, take enough of those benzos, clonopin, yeah. that kind of stuff. And so what effect did the benzos have on him, the Xanax, et cetera? Well, I had stayed two years through as he was going through all this process, I had stayed for two years, and when he came home and told me that, I just thought, I've got to go. I can't live like, I can't do this anymore. And my sponsor at the time kept telling me, most couples go back out together, you're gonna, you are going to, if you stay there, you're going to drink or use eventually. You can't do this. So I heard her. And um, I, I didn't get sober to live like that. And you had a number of years by that point, right? I had about 10 years at that time. Oh, my word. Yeah. And so I left, and he stayed in the house. And about nine months or so later, his brother started calling me. And he actually talked to his brother every Sunday. It was like their family ritual to talk every Sunday. And his brother said, I haven't talked to Skip in a few weeks. He said, have you seen him? I said, no. He said, well, do you mind going over to the house and, and just seeing if there's anybody there? So I told him I would, and I went over to the house. And um, he had changed the lock so I couldn't get in, but I went in the backyard, peeked in the, in the bay window, there was nobody there. His car wasn't there. We had a black lab named Jake. He wasn't there. It just, it looked like the house was empty. And I thought, well, maybe he went to treatment. I mean, I was hoping. So I went and called his brother. I said, he's, he's not there. I said, I'm sorry, I can't get in the house. I said, but he's not there. So then another month or so went by. He called, his brother called me again. Can you please go back to the house again? I haven't heard from him. I'm just, I'm extremely worried. So I went back again, same thing. The house looked exactly the same as when I'd been there before. So I called his brother back. I said, he's not there. And then one day I was sitting at the light at Sharon and Fairview and I got a call from the Charlotte Police Department and it was a detective. And he said, uh, we've been at your previous address he named the address, and he said, um, can you describe your husband for me? And I said, he's 6'4", he has salt and pepper hair, he has a scar on his ankle from surgery. And he said, okay. He said, we found your husband, and he's, um, he's been murdered. Um, and can you come in to the police station? We'd like to speak with you. So I agreed to that, and um, I called my, the woman who I'd been sponsoring the longest, um, and she immediately came and met me, and um, eventually I found out that um, my brother went with me to talk to the detective. Um, and eventually I found out that he had um, befriended this homeless couple and that he had gotten back into drug dealing, which is what he did before he got sober, and that they had gotten into an argument and the woman's husband had, um, had shot my husband. And the, <clears throat> these people were so cold and the ice around their heart had been, I mean, it was incredible how cold they were, but they, they shot him in an upstairs bedroom. They dragged his body down the stairs, shoved him in a coat closet, 
proceeded to rent a van, a big moving van, took everything out of the house they could possibly have wanted, and left. And the only way they caught them was eventually they had gone up to Pennsylvania where her parents lived and they were still driving my husband's car. And they um, pulled her over for running a stop sign, ran the tags on the car and said, this car is stolen and started talking to her and she confessed the whole story to the police in Pennsylvania. So they were brought back here when he went on trial and he was found guilty, he went to jail. Did you have to go through the trial? I couldn't go. I just, I couldn't go. I don't know what in me. And my brother said, I don't want you to sit there and listen to all that. He said, don't go there. And at one point, I was going to go and confront the man in jail. I was going to get on the visitor list and go confront him in jail. And my brother said, absolutely not. You are not going to go talk to a murderer. Have you lost your mind? No, you're not going there. So, I, I mean, he was seven years older than me. He was, you know, he was my rock. He'd always been there through everything. So I listened to him, and I didn't. I didn't go. You told me there was one time in all this where you were convinced that you were going to pick up again. I was. I was hurting so badly, and I blamed myself for my husband getting killed. I blamed myself. I said, it's all my fault. If I hadn't left, if I'd done an intervention, if I'd gotten him in treatment, if I hadn't listened, you know, all those what, you know, I should have, should have, should have, should have. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And one night I was in my, my condo and I, I thought, I, I'm done. I'm going to go get an eight ball. I'm going to get a half gallon of vodka. I'm done. I'm ending this. And um, a friend of mine in the program, Don C., called me. And the phone, the phone ringing, I was getting ready to go out the door. I had my keys in the door. I was getting ready to lock the door and leave. And I heard the phone ringing, and I went back inside, and I saw Don C. had left me a message. And I thought, what does he want? And um, the message was, he said, hey, baby. He said, just don't drink. Don't do any voodoo powder. And everything is going to be okay. And I was like, how did he know? How did he know? But you know what? He was the only one that could have reached me at that point. And God must have just been on his heart. You better call Rebecca right now. She is not well. And he, and I thought, everything's never going to be okay again. But I stopped. I took my keys out of the door. I put my purse down. I went back and sat on the couch. And that, just, that stopped me from going back out. And you did not pick up. I did not. And you have not picked up. I have not. And that's been how many years? I'll August. have 30 years in August. Congratulations. Thanks. High five. That's awesome. And so now when you look back at that, how do you think about it? It took me three years to come out of that. Um, I went back to my therapist. She said, you definitely have post-traumatic stress. She said, just try to be good to yourself. And she helped me work through the feelings of, blaming myself, because I thought it was all my fault. I took it all on myself. Um, so I did that, and it, it was three years before I could really feel myself coming back to myself. Um, and then I just began to get on, you know, with, with life. I, I decided that I was not going to let this define me, keep me down, make me miserable. I wasn't going to, I had been, I had enough AA under me to know that that self-pity 
was going to kill me if I allowed it. So I just persevered. I just had to persevere. Put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. The people from AA absolutely surrounded me. They surrounded me for that three years. And they would not allow me to be alone. They didn't allow me to veer off the path. They circled the wagons. I mean, I never felt so loved and cared for and just encompassed it, of the love in the AA program that the people had for me. I mean, Don C. stayed on top of me. Ellen was also a, a huge person in my life during that time. Um, some other people in the program, my sponsor, um, they just really would not let me veer off the path. Um, when your therapist told you to engage in self-care and be kind to yourself, what kinds of things, what did that mean? What, what did self-care look like? Not beating myself up, just to stop all those negative thoughts that kept coming in my brain, to mm -hmm. turn them away, to realize that he was on this path and that I could either have left like I did or I could have stayed there and gone down with him. I could have been dead also. I could have been in that room and that guy could have shot me too. Right. Yeah. And it was, that was his path. Right. That was his path and you had your path. Yeah, he, he chose that. And, there, and that there's a reason and a purpose for you in this intervening 19 years. Mm -hmm. You know, that Absolutely. you, that God's got more for you to do. Well, God bless you. I always ask everybody, uh, if we get struck by lightning today and the only thing that survives <laughs> is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? Oh my gosh. I hope that it's coming into AA and living my life with some dignity and some integrity and some peace of mind. I have peace of mind today. And I hope it's the women that I've sponsored all these years. I'm hoping that they're, I mean, I keep stressing to them that we're raising up the next generation. We have to be there so the next generation of women and men who come into AA have a program and they know that this is a life-saving option and that we can't ever stop doing this. We've got to carry this message to the people who need it. That I feel so strongly about that, that when I, the first time I read in the big book where it says, it's my job to be a maximum service to God and others around me, I was like, oh my gosh, that's my purpose. This is my purpose. I was so happy just to have a purpose finally, other than drink and use. So I've, real, I've taken that to heart. Well, I've seen it. I've seen you walk the walk. And uh, that's why I really wanted to talk to you, because I think it will benefit others to hear that. So I honor you. I just love seeing you around. Just love you. I appreciate you, Rebecca. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thank you for asking me, Stuart, very much. Thank you, Rebecca. Love you. What an inspiration. I've talked to other women who have survived violence and gone on to remain happy and healthy and sober women for years, if not decades. Uh, if you want to hear another one of those stories, Julie S., March 25th of last year, uh, Julie S., survivor, giver, friend, that's another one. There are several uh, back there in the backlog that you can check out. Thanks for listening. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. 
Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. Thank you so very much to all of those who have supported Man Listening and been with us from the very beginning. I really appreciate you. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks.